0: Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge, where today our following along in the uh, Come Follow Me Sunday School curriculum schedule, not the curriculum itself, but the schedule for the curriculum, that is produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, brings us to the book of Acts. For the first time all year, we are now out of the Gospels and into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 is where we'll be, and I think there are five weeks in Acts. Um, Can't tell on my schedule right now, but I think there are five weeks in Acts, and then we get into the epistles, starting with Romans. So exciting times now as we are starting the rest of the New Testament beyond the Gospels. The explanation that the apostles give about the Gospels, that's what we begin today. I... I feel a sneeze coming. I may have to sneeze momentarily, <laughs> but I kind of feel like it's going away now. That's not very satisfying. All right. Acts chapter 1 is where we'll be, and uh, today we're talking about how the Holy Spirit was promised to come to the believers, the disciples of Christ, and so he did, and we'll look at that in Acts 1 and 2. This uh, this week, Acts 1 through 5 is to be covered. So So many things could be looked at in Acts 1 through 5. But again, we're just uh, going to be looking at Acts 1 and 2 today. All right? Well, let's start uh, at the beginning of um, Acts 1. Not not all the way at the beginning. Verse 6 is where I want to start in Acts 1, talking about the ascension of Christ. There are only two places in the New Testament where we get the narrative uh, account of Jesus' bodily ascension. And both of these accounts were written by the same author. So we have it in Luke's Gospel, at the end of Luke's Gospel. And then we have it again in part two of Luke's work, the Book of Acts. Luke is the one who wrote the Book of Acts, and we have the narrative account here also. There is a brief um, mention—it could be considered a narrative account, but I think it's just like one sentence—at the end of Mark's Gospel. And the end of Mark's Gospel has uh, some— textual issues that would be interesting for uh, me to talk about sometime on here. But aside from that, you just have these two extended narratives, the end of Luke's gospel and the beginning of Acts, both written by Luke. And remember, Luke was doing an investigative report for a man called Theophilus. Uh, Luke was commissioned by him to give an account of Jesus and his followers and what happened with all them. And that's what Luke is doing, and that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 1 the second part of his story, starting in verse 6. It says, When they had come together, meaning the disciples, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea, And Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So there's our account of Jesus' ascension into heaven. Explicitly stated he went to heaven. Where he came from, that's where he went back, and he will be coming again from heaven at his second coming. So um, a couple of things to point out here before we get to the coming of the Holy Spirit. First, we recognize that this is a bodily ascension. Jesus was not a ghost in his resurrection. He rose again from the dead with a human body in glorified form, never to die again. A glorified human body, but a true human body. And he ascends to heaven here with this body. Jesus retains his body permanently. The Son of God did not have a body before the Incarnation. The Son of God did not have a body before He was born of the Virgin Mary. He existed from all eternity as Spirit, as the Father is Spirit, and as the Spirit is Spirit. Yet, in the Incarnation, He is now joined to a human body once for all. Now, that human body that He initially had was subject to death, right? He, he died. He was killed in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, it says in 1 Peter three eighteen. So Jesus endured all kinds of just human suffering and hardship in a fallen world in a human body. However, in his resurrection, this human body is glorified. Still a human body, but glorified. The same kind of body that believers in Christ will have when they are resurrected in a resurrection like his. They will be humans forever. We humans will be humans forever. We will, <clears throat> for those of us who are believers, when we die, we will be separated from our body. Our spirits will be present with the Lord, but our bodies will still be in the grave. Yet at that future resurrection, spirit and body will be joined again and we will live on forever with a human body. For those who are not believers in Christ, when they die, their body goes into the grave and their spirit goes to Hades. Their spirit goes to hell. And they also will be resurrected. Their spirits will be joined to their bodies, and they will be sent to the great white throne. Judgment, the dead, the great and the small, all of the dead, even the sea giving up their dead, these bodies will be presented to the great white throne. You can read about this in Revelation 20. And they will then be sentenced to the lake of fire, and they will endure that eternally. Uh, they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever, due to their sin. That's what the Bible presents. So uh, you ha- you have this reality that Jesus' resurrection is a bodily resurrection. Our future resurrection will be a bodily resurrection. And yet Jesus ascends to heaven here, and... Uh, It's this beautiful picture where he goes up into heaven after talking to the disciples just a little bit more. I mean, remember, he was alive for 40 days after his resurrection. So, this is the 40th day after the resurrection. He's been teaching his disciples, spending lots of time with his disciples. And they ask him, verse 6, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Because that's what's going to happen in the future. Israel's kingdom will be restored as prophesied. And he tells them, don't worry about the timeline here. It's not up to you to figure this out. It's not for you to even know. The Father has fixed times and epochs by his own authority. But instead, this is what Jesus wants them to focus on, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What a great promise here. And this isn't the only time he's promised or the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's not the first time he's talked about the coming Holy Spirit. But this is a very important verse, uh, a very important moment where he talks about this. Right before he ascends into heaven, he reminds them that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And so... um, That's what's going on here in Acts chapter 1. After this moment uh, of Jesus going to heaven and the angels interacting with the disciples, you have the disciples replacing Judas with Matthias. That goes on in Acts chapter 1, uh, which is just a little bit of an interesting thing. You can read about that. Uh, The disciples felt it necessary to maintain 12 uh, at this point. Now, also interesting is in Acts chapter 12... Yeah, 12. Kind of funny that's Acts chapter 12. You have James, one of the apostles, dying, and James does not get replaced. So at that point, they no longer felt it necessary. But at this point, before the coming of the Holy Spirit, they felt it necessary to maintain 12, and so they did. Of course, later on um, in Acts chapter 9, Paul... Be becomes an apostle. He's appointed, set apart by God himself, by God the Son, to be an apostle. And so for a time, there were 13 apostles. Uh, it doesn't seem to be a very long time, though. And then it was back to 12 after James died. And then you also have to, you know, the, these difficult uh, passages you got to deal with when it comes to who the apostles are. You've got James, the brother of Jesus, being referenced with the apostles seemingly maybe being called an apostle in Galatians chapter two, you have Barnabas explicitly called an apostle in the book of Acts. So you got to kind of figure out what's going on there. If they're using the term apostle in a different way in those cases, or if they were actually legitimately apostles, it's kind of difficult. But uh, this replacement process of when one dies, he gets replaced with another guy to maintain a certain number. The only place you see that is in Acts chapter one with the appointment of Matthias to replace Judas. It's the only place you see that, all right? Well, that's a whole bunch of stuff. I, this has been over 10 minutes already, and we haven't even gotten to the big theme of the of the lesson today, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit that happened at Pentecost. And let's look at Acts chapter 2, the first four verses. It says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So here you have the fulfillment of what we just read in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit has come upon them. They are demonstrating the power of God in how the Spirit is working through them in speaking with other tongues. All right? Very, very interesting. I I also find it interesting the descriptions that are here. I think verse 2 is easy enough to understand. Suddenly there came from heaven. Now that's interesting, the origin of this thing that's about to happen is heaven, from heaven, a noise. Okay, so heaven is sending out a noise suddenly. And the noise is like a violent rushing wind. So there wasn't necessarily a violent rushing wind, but there was the same kind of noise that you hear when there is a violent rushing wind. And that noise filled the whole house where they were sitting. So if we just slow down and look at the words of verse two, I think we can, in our mind's eye, craft that scenario a little bit. Where they're they're sitting there praying together. We read about that in Acts chapter one. They're in this upper room, and uh, this noise fills the whole house. Wow. Okay. Now verse three is a little bit harder <laughs> to understand for me. There appeared to them, so this is something visual that's happening. There's an appearance, and the appearance is tongues as of fire distributing themselves. As if that's not hard enough to understand, it goes on to say, and they, the tongues as of fire, rested on each one of them. So we we can understand a couple of things here clearly, that they were seeing something. There was a visual phenomenon happening in the house, and this visual visual phenomenon had to do with something appearing as to rest on each one of them. It was happening to each of the people in the house. Tongues, as of fire, distributing themselves, resting on each one of them. I do not know how you would like to picture that in your mind's eye you can give it a give it a go though all right unlike uh, imagining a, a an image of God crafting an image of God in your mind which is not a good thing to do um, this event you can try to craft an image if you want and try to figure out what this looks like and if hey if you can figure it out send me a portrait because I just don't really know what that would have looked like. Tongues as of fire distributing themselves, resting on each one of the disciples in the room. And then what happened after that is a filling. Notice it says they were all filled. And it does say all. Also, I guess that's important, isn't it? They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues. Now, what you have in the word tongue in verse 3 seems to be that little muscle in our mouth that makes us talk. It's an appearance of a tongue as of fire. So apparently it's something that looks like our tongue, but it's as of fire and it's multiple tongues distributing themselves. Okay, that's where it gets a little difficult as we just covered. But here you have tongue being used in a different way. And it's a way that we still use it today. When we say something like English is my native tongue, We're talking about our language that we speak. And the disciples here, when this happened, the tongues as of fire appearing, they began to speak with other languages. They began to speak languages that they apparently didn't know. And this was a pretty amazing sign that God is giving. And they were able to do this because of the Spirit's empowerment. Notice they were doing this as the Spirit was giving them utterance. They weren't doing this of their own ability, they weren't doing this because they took the Rosetta Stone course or Duolingo or whatever. Instantly, simultaneously, with an ability that was supernatural coming from the Spirit Himself, they were speaking with other languages. I think that is, that is really important to grasp and to understand here, that they weren't um, speaking in languages that they had studied and that they knew. They were speaking in languages in a supernatural way, meaning... Instantly, spontaneously, they were speaking fluently in a, in a previously unknown language to them. And it's also important to recognize here, too, that this isn't, like, gibberish. It doesn't say that they spoke in Babel, that they spoke, It wasn't anything like that. Perhaps you've seen some churches or denominations or groups that claim that that's what tongues is. That speaking in tongues is just speaking nonsense. That is not the case. Speaking in tongues, as here described, is speaking with legitimate languages that were previously unknown to the speaker uh, himself. This isn't the only place in the book of Acts you see this either. You see it again in chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, you have a mass conversion of Gentiles, Cornelius and the gang, uh, where Peter is sent out to go tell these people the gospel. And so he does. And they believe. As a result of their belief, they too receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in other tongues. And Peter explains all this in Acts chapter 11 to the other leaders in the church, and he says, it was the same thing that happened to us at Pentecost. So what God is actually doing here through the book of Acts is he's giving this supernatural speaking of tongues as a sign, a sign that someone has believed the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues at that time for that specific purpose was, was given so that people would know that they had the Holy Spirit. God was signifying to the church that you would know if someone had the Holy Spirit by the speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages, known languages. And um, in a way, too, this was a sign of judgment against the nation of Israel because now God has moved on from the nation of Israel being the sole recipient of his blessings and promises. He's now building an international church. He is now establishing a church from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And speaking in other languages, other tongues, signifies this. Now, one day, his attention will be back on national Israel, and the kingdom will be restored to Israel because they will convert to Christ. And when that happens, at the end times, there will be a restoration of Many of these sign gifts, these miraculous gifts that are signs pointing to God's work in the believer, bestowing his Spirit on them. However, right now, as we're kind of caught in between, God is building his church before the latter days. Uh, This sign no longer exists as uh, evidence that someone has received the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some people who will say, if you don't speak in tongues, then you've never received the Holy Spirit. But those same people say that tongues is just babble. Well, that's not the case. I mean, if you read through Acts chapter 2 beyond verse 4, you'll see that Peter is preaching a sermon, and there are people who hear the sermon and understand it because he is speaking in a known language. It was previously unknown to him, but It's an actual known language. You have all these people in Jerusalem at Pentecost who speak different languages, and God is getting the gospel out really quickly by causing the disciples to speak in other tongues and people hearing that and believing in the message. Uh, Today, God is not doing that anymore. I mean, it's pretty obvious. There are lots and lots of people who are receiving the Holy Spirit by believing in the gospel. There are lots of people who are Christians members of the Church of God, and yet we do not see any of them receiving, when they receive the Holy Spirit, a spontaneous ability to speak in other languages. It's just not happening right now. So this was a, a sign that was given in the first century for a specific purpose. And uh, if you want to know more about that, I have preached a sermon titled, No MSG. Uh, miraculous sign gifts, talking about how no longer is God bestowing miraculous sign gifts on believers in the church because they had a specific function in that first century and they will have a specific function later on when Israel converts in mass to God uh, through the gospel of Jesus. So there you go. There's a big <laughs> overview of what tongues were and what the purpose of tongues were. But um, let's focus, let's kind of reorient now, getting away from the event of tongues, and just think about the coming of the Holy Spirit in particular. Uh, This all happened, again, tongues and everything else, because God sent forth His Spirit. And Jesus prophesied this. And He didn't prophesy it in just one place, like I mentioned. It wasn't just Acts 1-8, it was in various places. One of those other places is in John. There's a a long section, John 14 through 16, where Jesus teaches his disciples a lot about the Holy Spirit. It's worth reading all three chapters, of course. But let's look at John chapter 14, starting in verse 16, and let's see what Jesus said about the coming Holy Spirit. Jesus says, "'I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever.'" That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Interesting language, isn't it? Not just with you, but in you. And then John 14, again, 25 and 26, it says, Jesus speaking, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Wow. So this, we're just looking at four verses from John 14, but these are powerful verses that tell us quite a bit about what the Holy Spirit is going to do in the life of the Christian. Notice in verse 16 here that Jesus says that he's asking the Father... And because of his asking, the Father will give the disciples another helper. You have the Trinity here in the first phrase of verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. You have Son, Father, Spirit. And the helper, your translation may say comforter or advocate or teacher. All of those are legitimate translations. The helper will be with the disciples forever there is no expiration on the time when the, the Holy Spirit will be with the disciples. He will be with us forever. And this is an aspect of Jesus not leaving us orphans. Jesus talked about that. I will not leave you orphans when he leaves. But when he leaves, what's going to happen? He's going to ask the Father, and the Father will give his people another helper. And um, down here in this other passage... It's said again in a different way. The Holy Spirit will be sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. And later on in this section, I think it's in chapter 16, though it might be in chapter 15 of John, Jesus actually includes himself in the sending of the Holy Spirit. The Father and Son send the Spirit together. But here he's speaking of the Father sending the Spirit in Jesus' name. And what's going to happen? Well, the Holy Spirit's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I do think this is particularly speaking of the disciples, those who would become the apostles who would write the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit was going to give them a good memory about what Jesus had to say, and they would be able to effectively, accurately explain in their writings under his inspiration what Jesus wants the church to know. But, of course, there's an aspect, too, in which all disciples receive the Holy Spirit. We were just seeing it in the book of Acts, and we read about it in the New Testament. And he comes only to those who believe in Jesus, but he comes at the moment they believe in Jesus. When a person believes in the biblical gospel, immediately that person receives God himself, God the Spirit, who comes into his heart and does an amazing work. In Titus chapter 3, we're told that the Holy Spirit washes and regenerates. The Holy Spirit is right there at the moment of salvation, cleansing the soul, causing the person to be born again. That's what regenerates means, to be a new creation. We read in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4 that at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit sets God's seal on the believer that the person is sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. That person is saved by God, made new by God through faith in the gospel, never to be lost. He is sealed with the power of God until the day of redemption. That is incredible. A person cannot lose his salvation because if he's truly been saved, he's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings about gifts in the believer's life. This is in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The Holy Spirit... Uh, comes into the believer's life, and as he wills, as the Spirit wills, there are certain gifts that are distributed to that believer so that he can serve effectively in the church, and he can be a living sacrifice for God in serving people. The Holy Spirit brings about fruit. In Galatians chapter 5, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, etc., etc. You have the fruit of the Spirit uh, that is supernaturally, brought about in the believer's life by the power of the Holy Spirit. So uh, the Christian, though he's not receiving miraculous sign gifts from the Spirit anymore, that happened in the first century for that particular purpose, the Christian is still participating in the supernatural work of the Spirit, isn't he? I mean, these are all supernatural things, that a person would be born again, made new, be given a new nature, that a person would be joined to Christ, That's unnatural that a sinner would become a child of God. That's not natural. It's supernatural. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit. That a person would be able to be led by God and function with certain gifts and and certain uh, divine, beautiful characteristics of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control— Against such things, there is no law. I mean that this is all brought about by the Holy Spirit. Now, is it as flashy and exciting as being able to stand up and instantly spontaneously speak in another language? That's not as exciting as that, right? Self control and patience, ugh, that's just like not fun. But it's supernatural. It's a work of God in the life of the believer that anybody would be led of God to be that way. I mean these are these are attributes that reflect God. It's just so amazing. And this is the great advantage of the Christian life. For someone who is truly a Christian, he has God. He has the Spirit. He is led by God himself through this life. He is able to serve God. He has certain gifts and abilities that that God has has worked in his life. And he's able to uh, not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He's able to fulfill the desires of God in the way that he walks through this life, being led by the Spirit. Only the Christian has these advantages. Someone who is in his natural state, born into this world, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Someone who has not believed On Jesus Christ through the biblical gospel, he does not have this advantage. He doesn't have the Spirit. So the question, of course, is, do you have the Spirit? Do you have this advantage? It's an amazing thing that someone can believe on God and believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ, trusting in what he has done for salvation, and From that point forward, never, ever be without God, but always be indwelt by God, led by God, protected by God because of the work of the Holy Spirit. That is an extreme advantage in life for many reasons. And it is a provision of God that he would give us himself to comfort us, to help us, to teach us. That's the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. I hope this is helpful. Again, Acts 1 through 5 is the whole section for this week. Totally worth reading, all five chapters. So uh, go ahead and do that. Check it out. And uh, until next time, may the Lord bless you. And I hope you have the Holy Spirit by believing in the Lord Jesus. God bless.